gonna play a little game. You're gonna pretend that your life isn't already over. This is Slashers, a horror movie podcast brought to you by one goon who took the afternoon off to talk to his new goon friend, Tom Bocci. Tom, say hello to the world at large. <laughs> hello, fellow goons. <laughs> How are you today, my friend? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me on. So you are a rare percipient witness to the drama that is my life. So for those of you who have no idea, Tom was kind enough to touch base with me and we discussed doing this whole interview. He sends me the screener for his movie, all of this on good faith. And then my wife is looking at social media and she goes, how the fuck do you know Tom? <laughs> and I was like, oh, what? and I find out that our lives have crossed paths at least once significantly that comes to mind in the past. So you can be a precipient witness that my wife didn't give two goddamns about horror movies when you were friends with her before we were, I guess, cohabitating. Yes, yes. So I've known your wife for, well, a little bit longer than you, actually. Yeah. Because I, I met her the first time back when she was still going to college. Dang. Yeah. Was she hot? It's okay. I don't answer that. It's just, that's a weird question to put you on the spot. Because there's no good way to answer that, right? <laughs> I'm glad it's going out to the public. I, I didn't know you were bringing the hard-hitting questions, but let's go. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, I love doing that. Brian and Chad will finish recording most times. And at least one of them like, what the fuck were you asking me that question for? I'm like, I just like to make people uncomfortable. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but you got to bear in mind, my in my day job, I'm an attorney. So I have to make people uncomfortable so that, you know, I can get them to slip up. So probably right. need to tone that down a bit. Right. Probably no better way to make people feel at home. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so, Tom, we're here. We're going to try to do a retrospective of your career thus far, but mainly we're talking about Arctic, A-R-T-I-K. Is that right? Yes, sir. Okay. So you wrote and directed this. I did. And how was that process? Because this movie is incredibly visual. What I love, and I, I've ranted about this a bunch of times, I love movies that do two things. One, that they're short enough to where I don't feel like I've like sacrificed a portion of my soul. And two, that are gripping enough to where I don't look at the devil box that is my phone. And you did both, my friend. So oh, nice. what was the screenplay writing process like for something that is so visual and moves at such a good pace? Well, I work by trade. I'm a video editor, so I tend to write the same way. I'm usually writing scenes and starting the editing process as I'm writing. And so I'm kind of like always cutting out the filler. And, you know, I don't know, there are a lot of my favorite movies growing up. I just remember they were like, they moved so quickly, like movies like Streets of Fire or The Road Warrior or Rapid Fire. It's like these are movies that, by the way, if you notice, two of those have fire in the title. So maybe I'm just yeah. into fire. I don't know. But but like there, there were movies that just like moved so quick. It's like once we got into the setup, it was like, just go. And they were edited really well. And I'm just really into that. I think naturally I gravitate to that because I'm a video editor. So I'm always into like pacing, you know? It shows, yeah. yeah. And especially to hear you say that the Road Warrior, you know, means a lot to you. That's great because the characters in this film, the dialogue in this film, I got a vibe like that. Not even trying to blow smoke up your ass. But Holton, to me, even in his like monochromatic color scheme was reminding me so much of Rogachevsky. So 
that's awesome. Nice. Nice. Well, yeah, I appreciate that. And um, yeah, I mean, that was kind of the other aspect is that, you know, if you look at a film like that, really, that's about an 80 minute movie with about, I, I, to me, it feels like about 20 pages of the script are dialogue. The rest is all action, you know? Exactly. And, and I was just always attracted to that. You know, this is a thriller. We have a lot of big beats and there's a lot of, you know, moments of uh, where you need kind of the exposition. But then there's also moments where you could just kind of let it beat you over the head. And uh, so, so yeah, so that's one thing that I wanted to try to do with the first feature. I just really wanted to um, get something that I knew at the end of the day, if I couldn't do a good job at this or a good job at that, one thing I could do a good job at was kind of carrying something and just plowing right through it, you know? And getting you from point A to point B. Yeah, there's something to be said in art and cinema for allowing the thing to speak for itself. Like, right. leave it to the audience to add the interpretation. Right, right exactly. I love so much when a, a writer has the confidence, or director, or cinematographer has the confidence to just put something out and let it be. Because I give this example all the time. The thing I hate about Rob Zombie's Halloween is that he makes Michael sympathetic. Like, what is, if you go back to, you know, Dr. Loomis, what's wrong with him, doctor? He's just pure evil. Like, he's a personification of evil. And you, the reason you might be afraid of him might be entirely different than the reason I might. But when you make him some sad little abused boy, we're like, oh, okay, well, I know everything, so there's no interpretation. Right. Now, was it tempting with a character like Arctic or Jerry G. Angelo to give him more of a backstory? Or was it... Was it almost like fun even in the writing process to make sure that less is more? Well, you know, originally we had a lot more in there. And when we were on set, we kind of decided to, you know, we filmed more, but we decided to move away from it. And also we were constantly like bringing the dialogue down because his performance just seemed to almost like it felt more powerful when we were resting on him. Okay, so let me, let me just give you a little bit backstory. My dad passed away, and I and I started writing about that, and that's how the character of Arctic developed, which may be a little weird, but Arctic, since he's a serial killer, <laughs> but, yeah, I was about to say, um, you're like the statute uh, of limitations we, has passed because he's passed, but still, yeah. you might be an accomplice, right? You're like, uh, you might want to talk to your therapist about this, but uh, yeah. <laughs> but uh, the the idea was is when I was writing about it, it was helping me like heal and get over that. But one of the things my dad did when he talked when he would have a conversation with you is he would make the conversation come to him so even if he's speaking words towards you he's so patient in between each sentence it's like it created this uncomfortable super strict environment when we were growing up and so i always thought well that'd be great to capture in like a really just like a more demented character and so that's kind of how when we were there maybe Jerry was doing the lines and there was a lot of lines and I was like, Hey, let's slow this down. You know, let's, let's take out. Okay. How about every third line we take this out and see if we could make these two lines make sense. Okay. Now let's combine them. And so it was a very interesting way to go about it because it was almost like we were editing on the fly, you know? Absolutely. And um, I think it, I think it works better that way, honestly. Yeah. And it speaks to his ability to work on the fly and you, you say, all right, you do this, you try this. And that sense of experimentation uh, that it he truly does a very good job because what you're saying about him having that kind of magnetic personality, he mm -hmm. has a very Gregory Peck kind of presence in this yeah. where he leaves those like pregnant pauses where you're like, well, please, for Christ's sake, someone, which is awesome. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I guess in the writing process, 
you have him maybe a little bit more verbose. So the staunch contrast between him and Boy Adam is even more severe, right? Right, right, exactly. Boy Adam was supposed to be essentially a kid who he wasn't sure who to trust in the world. And he was kind of like, essentially, he was supposed to be Holton almost as a child, you know? I, I mean, I want to leave that up to other people for to get their own interpretation, but uh, but that's kind of was my original goal. Is like, well, what if Holton was um, a child and was still trying to figure it all out? Because the Holton, as you see him as a character, is almost like the adult version of someone who's been through a lot of trauma. And boy, oh, absolutely, Adam, boy, Adam is the trauma beginning. You know, honestly, so I've been made fun of a few times on this show for being the straight edge guy with stoner theories. I totally looked at this and maybe it was like also the juxtaposition of like the sunflower fields and thinking about it, but almost like looper where it was almost like a feedback loop of if not the same exact person, archetypes of the same person. So what you're saying resonates completely with what I was vibing on in the watching process. That's super cool. Yeah, that's definitely a totally like a stoner theory. <laughs> right, like that's That's like the best type of straight edge to be is like straight edge with like yeah but this is going to be the craziest theory that no one has ever thought of like where did you get that that doesn't even make sense i, so, I get that all the time right <laughs> but no that that yeah that's a great theory um and i love that movie i love looper so yeah so if i may also on the topic of straight edgeness extend a very fond thank you to you for including a straight edge character who isn't cm punk because i right. feel like anytime i mention that people are like oh like this guy and i'm like no 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 yeah like like anything but that guy yeah so i'm basically uh you know i don't i don't partake in any uh in anything really i've never really labeled myself as straight edge but i've always been fascinated by that kind of like I don't know what you call it, that, that, that demographic, you know, like that, that whole, the whole idea, that ideology, because it was kind of like, that's just how I grew up. And I didn't know that there was a name for that. And, oh, yeah. and then I remember being in a band and it was weird because like, I remember not liking straight edge music, but I, but I just was straight edge. <laughs> and so it was oh, so yeah. weird. So kind of the Holton character is a little bit it's it's got pieces of me and it also has elements of an ex-girlfriend who was directly straight edge that was like in straight edge bands and all that and went to Al-Anon and you know and that was another healing process was like writing the character as I would get stuck I would just kind of start I would just kind of start writing about my ex and then it was weird because the two kind of morphed so you know it's a weird thing but they always say write what you know and like the movie's been super healing and all those other words that people use now and yeah, I mean, my whole life, whenever I would see a cool character, it'd always be like the dude in the corner smoking a cigarette or the guy yep. who's really drunk, you know, like leaving Las, Las Vegas. That's such a good performance because it captures him drinking himself to death. And it's like, how about someone who just is dealing with the fact that what everyone does to fit in, they don't do like that is it's torturous at times. And that's yep. that's what I think. Like, that's a true dark character It's literally when everywhere you look it's like you're essentially proven wrong. Like people are like, no, that's not right. Like you can't develop your own identity because you're not following a group. And that was a little bit about what Straight Edge was like for me. And yeah, I just thought that'd be a far deeper character than like, let's say if Holton was actually at an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting and he was just like, I drink so much last night. You know, it's like, I've already seen that version of a broken character. I don't need to see it anymore. 
But yeah, it's to the point of where that's an archetype. Whereas this, I mean, there is no archetypal straight edge guy who's so emotionally broken that they're experimenting with any type of counseling they can get in what seems to be a very rural area with no resources. And also, I could totally empathize with the idea of having been surrounded by alcoholics going to that kind of place for you know mental healing. I have a friend, Zach, who's a drug and alcohol counselor up in the San Francisco area, and he's completely straight edge, and it's the same kind of thing. So just like you, your autobiographical nature influencing your writing, it's also influencing the way I'm seeing this movie. Because right. for us, it's something like, oh, cool, this is something so unique, and it means a lot. And to somebody else, it might not mean anything, but it's not detracting. So worst case scenario, it's just like, oh, that what does straight edge mean? Oh, well, this is moving on. Right. right. So I think that it's a very clever way of doing it. Now, on to another of my obsessions, of which there are many that you've hit on comic books. Oh, yeah. I, I love it. I love so much because I'm sure you've seen movies like Super or things where, or Defender with Woody Harrelson, where it's a guy who's disturbed and he looks at the superheroes as this I'm going to be the, the hero, but they come across as the butt of the joke, you know, like mm. in both those films, it's almost as if like they're quote unquote on the spectrum and they don't really understand the ramifications of what they're doing. Whereas with the character Arctic, I mean, there's so much like rich fun that you could have mentally chasing that character down. Yeah. Can you kind of describe for me the idea of where comic books go into this character? Yeah. So the idea, uh, I mean, originally uh, this goes back to my day job. I used to work at Disney and I hated it. I hated every day I walk in there. And every day we would cut stuff for Marvel. And I just would sit there cutting these things and thinking about how much money all of these things cost. And the fact that I was being paid a ridiculously low freelancer rate. And there'd be other employees around me who are going through the same thing. And they would just sit there in the excitement of, we get to cut a Marvel thing? Oh, my God. My wife needs money for her cancer treatments, but I can't believe that I get to talk <laughs> about Stan Lee and it, it made me fucking sick. And I think Disney's just a, if there was ever a depiction like of what hypocrisy truly is, it's the company that produces the dreams, the land of fun and what they really are and how they really treat their employees. And so to me, it was like this great idea of like, um, so you're telling me there could be someone who maybe they're failing in everything in their life. People around them are not happy, but they are so obsessed with comic books that it's almost like they lose their grip on reality. And they're just like, no, 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 it's fine. As long as I get to work on my books, <laughs> the world's going to be okay. Or like their version of the world. And I was, it just hit me like right then, like while I was at that job, like this has to be the background of some sort of character, like a guy who just really where he lives is amongst his creations and not in his own life. It's almost like he's delusional or he doesn't understand what, what he's actually doing. He only understands what he's creating when he's creating his comic books. And the same goes for his victims. His victims are extensions of his comics. So that was a little bit of what I was going for when coming up with Arctic. When it comes to that first victim, this is my interpretation. I think that based on what you just said, it's true. It seems that this dude has done nothing wrong. This dude, he's almost like the the senator's daughter at the start of Silence of the Lambs. 
all they're wanting to do is help, you know, the Ted Bundy wannabe, and then they become the victim. But Arctic looks at him and is like, you're the problem. You're this embodiment of evil because of his projection of his own work. So just like you're saying, he's not dealing with the rest of the world. The rest of the world is just kind of the accoutrement to his delusion. Right. That was a big word. But yes, <laughs> I agree. <laughs> I try to pretend to be smart because right. I say butt fucking every other word. So I feel like sometimes I got to elevate the language on the show a little bit. Right, right. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. I mean, you're right. I agree. In going to the wife now. That's a very fun character because her neuroses manifest in multiple ways, which I think is a much more accurate way of describing or showing somebody with any kind of psychosis. Uh, one thing that I've always been frustrated with in movies is how everybody is so simply crazy. You right. know, it's just like, oh, this thing that like a neurological or a chemical imbalance is so easily defined into this, you know, circular cylinder goes into this circular hole and that's it. Whereas this character, you know, she has issues with Arctic directly, with the children, with cleanliness, uh, with their own stuff. Can you talk about just how you came to write her? Yeah. You know, I was looking at interesting cases of husbands, uh, husband and wife duos that have kind of gone down, you know, have, have worked together to either kidnap people or work together as like serial killers or killers or or just work together for whatever it is. Maybe if there's a, a child that they're trying to get rid of, how they work together to kind of cover their tracks. And uh, a case that popped up that was really interesting was Philip and Nancy Garrido. And when I was, um, there was a, a time in my life where I was involved in the pro wrestling industry. So it's funny, okay. so it's funny you brought up CM Punk earlier. <laughs> well, it's, it, well, it was also funny because both Jerry, who plays Arctic in this, and then Raphael Siegel, who's in your prior film, are built like fucking brick shit houses. And I, both of them, I was like, these guys should be pro wrestlers. So much so that with Jerry, when, if we were doing a nickname session like we do on the full form show, I was going to call him Luke Harper. So that is absolutely hilarious. That's hilarious because we originally we had you know talked to Luke Harper, John, about being involved. And, oh uh, wow! And it, and it was really cool because when I ran into Jerry, I was like, okay, well, you know, um, this this is this is great. You have essentially that's a similar type of look, and you know, Jerry had a similar type of look, and I I felt like Jerry was just like really ready for a type of role like this where he could get more physical because I had seen other stuff he had done, and honestly, it wasn't very physical. And I just wanted something very, very physical, but also have someone who's able to carry the role in case we need to get a little deeper or anything like that. And so definitely when I was writing it, I remember thinking about like, oh man, if I could just get someone who has like a look like Harper, you know, <laughs> or like a Bray yeah. Wyatt, you know, something like that. So. So going back, sorry, I completely derailed you. You were talking about Philip and Nancy Garrido. They abducted JC Duggard. So when we were in Antioch, it was for a wrestling show. And I remember we would stay the night with a group of pro wrestlers in this house. And years later, I was working at a TV station and I happened to look at our top of the hour tees, you know, just enjoying my day. And I saw one of the wrestlers talking about some case. And I was like, what is going on? And I watched the story and it turned out that Philip and Nancy Garrido, where they kept JC Dugard, was in the house next door to us. And Holy so, shit. Yeah. So we were like leaving, you know, we were just having wrestling after parties and things like that and not realizing that there was crazy stuff happening, like literally 
I don't know, 50, 60 yards away. And so that case always interested me. So that was one of the things I talked to about Lauren after she signed on was just this idea of what is it when it comes to like an, a Nancy and Philip Garrido? Because clearly, clearly Philip's the mastermind, but also there's something with Nancy that's far more interesting that nobody's really looking at. You know, she's not a victim in this. Yeah. She's, she's almost, she has her own agenda too. And it's so interesting. And like, there's so many layers to her. And so that was one aspect of something we looked at before crafting that character is, you know, um, the character of, of Flynn Braze. She's very, she's upset when things, the farm, she, she's always stressed out about the farm and the farm life. And she's very, you know, she wants Arctic to be home and not be worrying about these comics and things like that. You know, she refers to the victims as trash, you know? Yes. And, and she doesn't, it's like she doesn't approve, but also at the same time, she's still supportive, you know? Yeah, so it's it's more than just being an unwilling, I mean, she's, a, if not an outright accomplice, she's at least complicit in what's going on. Yeah. Like she has yeah. every resource to stop it, but even despite her complaining and her acts like it's a problem, it might, you know, she's still there. Kind of right. reminds me of... I don't know if you've ever heard of the Ken and Barbie killers. They're this Canadian couple, one of like the worst crimes I've ever heard of when it comes to her sister. And she ends up getting a plea bargain. And then tapes reveal later that she was actually this terrible piece of shit who was a completely an accomplice to everything in setting everything up. But she'd already got a plea deal. So she just fucking walks after a little bit of time in prison. So those wow. like true life things are haunting. So even though I hadn't really read on the Garrido case, as soon as you're saying all this and talking about like its relation to you, it brings up those things. And that's something that's so great. Like I said earlier about less being more, you're allowing me as the audience member to just be enriched with all this stuff or inform it myself and pick up on the things that I want to pick up on. So that's badass, very sophisticated of you. Now let's talk about your writing career when it comes to this point. You've really, you've written the stuff that you've done. Have you written anything else that might not be on your IMDb? I mean, I I kind of feel like ever since Arctic, there's always something kind of in the works. But uh, but the truth is, Arctic is my first real. I feel like crack at it, you know. And I feel like the only reason it worked was just because I was kind of pulling from within, you know. I was writing about my dad who passed away. I was writing about my ex. I um I was writing about myself, some of the struggles I had growing up straight edge, and so it was. Uh, other other than that, I mean. I, it's really just short films that I had done prior and I have, have a background in television. I used to direct a lot of music videos and they're really fun, but uh, you don't really make any money and, you know, and the, the yeah. personalities are, it just, it wasn't for me, you know? So it's um, my understanding that a lot of directors and filmmakers nowadays treat music videos as just a portfolio builder at this point am i right um i mean for for some people i would say that that's correct i know, I know for yeah. me i i really love music videos you know i just i love the way they're edited i love the energy um i love the type of storytelling you could do in a music video but i feel like the problem is the industry the music industry itself has changed so much and also the way the content is consumed and the way the audience is reached is just not the same game as it was when we were growing up, you know? 
Oh, yeah. I mean, I can't imagine Total Request Live does killer numbers nowadays. Right. And, and I mean, you're not going to see videos like Pearl Jam's Jeremy or or like <laughs> that Come As You Are video. from. Oh, Nirvana. absolutely. You're not going to see those types of things. What you're going to see is people pushing image over everything. And uh, and it's, I don't know, man. It's just everything's following these trends. And it's just. It's all gimmick, right? Yeah. It feels, it feels a lot of it feels like filler, you know? Yeah, this might be a little bit of a detour, so bear with me. But when it comes to like, you know how chapters in your life just that's the end. I very vividly remember watching the music video for OK Go when they do the fucking treadmill thing. Oh, and right. be like, This is where I stop caring about music videos as much because and to their credit, I mean, they nailed it with their audience and that's fine. But I knew that from there, it was going to be, how can I get people's attention? It's going to be Opagonman style with explosions and silliness. And the artistry, like you're, you just mentioned, name dropped, you know, two music videos that I've always loved. Like Jeremy, that's that's a fucking short story that happens to have music behind it. Right. You know, that's uh, like I said, a detour. But you, that you're informing the audience so much of yourself because you're an editor, a musician. So you put those things together. I mean, you could in, in turn talk about this movie being one long music video. So let's cue into the musical discussion. Oh, sure. <laughs> was that fun or was that? Because th this is one of the things I'm always so fascinated with. So you're writing, you're directing, you're doing everything. So this is your, as much of a singular vision as you can have with a crew of 20 people, right? Right. So the music, are these things that you had in your mind before you even started filming? Does this happen in editing? How did that go? Yeah, I mean, before, even as I was writing the script, I could imagine a sound to the film that sounded like instrumentation that was broken. So not, and I don't mean like a trash can falling over or like the sound of glass breaking. I mean like a guitar where the neck is broken of the guitar and the fretboards like are all jacked up. And so when you play a normal chord, it just doesn't sound right. And that's how I imagine almost like every instrument that was involved. And so when I talked to the composer, um, Corey Wallace, we got together and kind of formulated. First thing we started doing is just like assembling lots of sounds and um and then there were times where it was just like man this is sounding so clean i think this needs to sound broken give me a guitar and i would like pick up a guitar and do a crazy sound and then he would sample that and loop it into something and then he would add all these layers and so originally i thought i would kind of be very removed from the music process because um from the scoring process because um i just really like people doing their own thing and me giving them some groundwork but them going but ultimately what I found is like there were certain sounds that I was attached to that I did not realize I was attached to that were happening since when I was writing the script. And so after we were already done editing it and we were now scoring it, every time I saw Arctic, I just always imagined like these low end, almost metal notes, like drop D tuning from like a weird guitar with the neck broken. And so when we were going through and scoring it, it's like... You know, there was lots of dark tones, but it didn't have that. So I was like, hey, man, hold on. <laughs> Let me just yeah. grab this guitar real quick and throw it up against the wall and see if we get the sound. And that's kind of what happened. So, you know, there's... So I got to be critical of you, my friend, because your IMDb does not imply that you did that kind of work in the music department as well. Right. So we need to build you up because that sounds awesome. Right. Well, it was more so helping lay out a groundwork of something that he was already creating, you know. So, I mean... I feel like there's just certain things I think with any like version of art, 
there's always going to be something if you're working with somebody else where there's certain things that really only you yourself communicate can communicate, you know? And Absolutely. so I think, I think that was one of those cases where there'd be certain instances where it's like, he had like great everything. And then I wanted to lay something out that I had kind of heard in my brain from when I first started laying out the script. And there was certain things that were like, you know, um, I just, I also wanted it to have like, uh, go back and forth from like a dirty, broken feel from all the instrumentation to also like almost metal fill anytime we, we see Arctic and then almost like a happy or peaceful feel when we see the boy or we see Holton. So, yeah, I mean, it was more like honing in on the idea while also trying not to be, uh, you know, letting, letting him work and do his thing as well. Yeah, you have a very good wall of sound kind of feeling in mm-hmm. it. Even when there's minimalist music, because you're doing great work with the tones and the full effect of it, you're creating something that's way bigger than I think what people would give it credit for, which is awesome. I, I think that that shows very clearly. And what you're t- talking about reminds me, and it sounds like you've probably had these ses- sessions before, being in a band, picking up somebody else's instrument and be like, hey, can you do something with this? Because I feel like this could work. And some of the most fun times that I had in a band was pretending I could play guitar long enough to be like, all right, we'll just put it as a bridge somewhere. But just so long as I know that I did something worthwhile besides yelling is awesome. Right, right. And and it's also the the idea, too, of I wanted something that felt like it moved it, you know, pacing wise. I wanted something that moved quickly, but I wanted the music to like add another layer of that to really rush you along. So anytime we had down moments, I was like, no, let's fill this up. You know, we're not, we're, we're editing this. I want this to feel like this is a trailer. I want it to feel like a ginormous, I don't want it to move like a normal film. So that was kind of part of that. You know, one of those, one of those secrets you see in some of these great trailers is they're kind of filled with music and it's, it's, they're over before they begin on some of the better ones. And, and by the same token, when people break that role and do the opposite, gives that trailer sometimes some extra tension, you know, more tension in areas you didn't expect because you're not hearing those things. So um, I just kind of wanted to play in that space, you know, because um, I, I just wanted it to feel not as uh, we're going from A to B to C to D. You know, yep. I just wanted to be like uh, you're in a scene and then I wanted a, a certain kind of like broken, you just got smacked. <laughs> type of yep. feel to get to something else. Um, Cause I, hey. I just, I haven't seen that, you know, and at the end of the day, that's kind of what I'm trying to do here is do things that I haven't seen that feel uniquely me or something that I've always wanted to see. That's kind of like us with this podcast is we created content that we wanted, but what right. you just said kind of reminded me and forgive me if it sounds like I'm making light of your work and your, your process. But when Gabe Lewis in the office says it's almost because he's showing that like horrifying short black and white uh, film at the Halloween party. It's almost like the person who made this knew that like story structure is comforting in some way or narrative is comforting. And, you know, what you're doing is you're giving the velocity of a trailer, but without any of the, I guess, anticipation because you don't let people anticipate it, which. I've been ranting as much as anybody will fucking listen that I'm just, I've refused to watch trailers anymore. I watched your trailer because I wanted to ask about this point, given that you're an editor, was it hard for you to edit a trailer for your own movie, knowing that like so much of the culture now in trailers are, this is the best bits of the movie. So you can go and spend $17 to sit in a theater and wait for those bits of the movie. Oh yeah. It's, 
first of all, it's hard to do anything of your own work, <laughs> just period. Like if you had a, if you, you know, if you remember back to those days when you're in a band and it's like, hey, we have to release a snippet to a radio show or, or something. It's like, what the hell are you going to release? You know? Yep. And, uh, and, you know, there's so many bands I remember back in the day were focused on the single. And it's like, yeah, but what if you're just a band that does music that you like and you have 12 songs you like? Like, what do you do? You know, what do you give yeah. them? And so well, I remember um, us being like overly ambitious and trying to do like a concept album, which was an EP. And we're like teenagers. That was dumb. And nobody had the patience for it. Everybody right. wants the single. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. So it's just really hard in general to be critical of your own stuff. But the best thing, yeah, that I just kind of have been learning the past 10 years is just the ability to like separate myself from things I, I do like the things I create and just letting them sit and marinate for a while and then kind of getting more critical about them. But yeah, it was, it was really hard. It was also the first trailer I knew I wanted to cut something that felt a little more hype oriented. And I feel like those cuts are a little more easier, especially if you're pulling from your own project, because you understand where those like, well, I got to pull the best 17 scenes are. The, yep. the scenes with the biggest uh, the biggest booms and and the most nudity or whatever it is you're yep, going exactly. for you know and the second trailer for me our official trailer is the one where it really got down to the nitty-gritty and i had to do it really with the implication of certain things and use a lot of editing tricks and that one felt like a big challenge because i wanted to tell a story add some hype and also add some ebbs and flows to the trailer and that's you know, it's just, it's a lot more difficult creating a roller coaster of emotion than people think, and much less the art of trailers in general. You know, it, it, it's insane. I don't think people understand that it's like an entirely different form of communication, commercials, trailers. And so <laughs> to try to pull that off was hard, but also once you get going, I will say you do reach a point where you feel like you can just it's almost like with writing, when you get in a pattern, you get in a process and you're just rolling, you feel like you're untouchable in a way. Like you just keep going like, oh, I'm going to write 10 pages today. I'm going to write 40 pages today. It just keeps rolling over. It's the same with if you're writing songs and you're having a particularly creative day, your flow is just going. And uh, yeah. so to answer your original question, yeah, it's hard as shit. <laughs> <laughs> it's just perfect. I one thing that I wanted to touch on that you talked about, like people don't give it credit, the difference between a trailer and a movie, like even on a neurochemical level. And I, I don't want to get overly heady, but like whether it's dopamine or serotonin or, or what neurotransmitters you're literally producing, it changes whether it's a fast response, whether it's a comedic response, whether it's like an aha moment. Right. You know, like when you ever watch like fuck uh, seven you get that whoa at the ending is entirely different than any other thing that you get in the movie. That's literally right. your body's chemistry telling you that. And here you are having to take your own work and chop it up and make a Frankenstein's monster to make something that is indicative of your work, but also has to hit someone on a completely different level, which isn't fair to you. Right, right. And um, yeah, and then the interesting process, uh, you know, in terms of that is I don't think a lot of people realize, especially when they are kind of, if they are crafting their own films, trailer or, or anything like that, about the different types of techniques that play on certain emotions, like thematic editing, you know, making you feel something 
with just seeing images instead of seeing what's happening in those images spelled out. So making you feel, you know, gloomy and depressed instead of just showing you a shot of someone killing themselves or something of that nature, you know, or a rabbit being choked. You know, it's like, just I'm just going to show you a bunch of things that give you the impression when you look at them that creates a theme of emotion. And so the way editing works, if you will. Yeah, the way editing works is so interesting because you could show someone the beginning of something and then the tail end of something. And in their brain, they'll put the two together. They understand what just happened. You only need to show them a fraction of a second of one and a fraction of a second of another. So that's a really interesting technique to study when it comes to editing trailers or just getting across emotion is the fact that a person's brain will fill in the gaps for you. Oh, 100%. I mean, I've, I've ranted about this all the time. Mm-hmm. But one of my favorite t- topics to bring up in terms of that exact thing is Texas Chainsaw Massacre. You can go up to f- pretty much any dildo out in the street and be like, oh, my God, you remember that movie, right? And they're like, yeah, I remember that movie. It's so gnarly. Like, You remember seeing that meat hook go through that girl's chest? Oh, yeah, I totally remember. Well, it doesn't fucking happen. It's never on screen. You see her being lifted. You see her descend. You hear a squelch. You never see it happen. That's your brain making up fiction which is amazing to think and so it's clear that like you as an editor have a much different perspective because you know those tricks versus i feel like so many writer directors have this heavy heavy influence where they're afraid to throw out the baby with the bathwater. they want to make sure that all of their ideas are commemorated they're all seen and perfect right yeah yeah and I, i think for me it just i don't know like i love throwing shit away you know like i love yeah. taking a script and i'm like yeah let's kill 20 pages of this you know like i i love that idea and i think that's where you should be if you're trying to like create something that you really want to you know move the way it should and i think a lot of people tend to get tied up in that idea of like they're so attached to so many ideas. Like I felt guilty about being attached to certain things in the writing process when it came to the music, but I just knew that was the whole voice of it. So I had to add it in, you know? And if you're not that critical, then it's kind of like, what are you doing? Like, are you just fulfilling your own type anus here? Like what's, what's going on? You know, you gotta, you gotta becomes a bit go. masturbatory, right? You're making yeah. a movie for yourself, not an audience. Right. And so you know, making a movie for yourself is definitely part of it, but also you just, I don't know, man. You got to be able to watch your own stuff and be proud of it. You can't just, it's, it's not a home video. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I think that a lot of people, and there's extremes on both sides right. because there are the people who need to have everything commemorated because they need to have, you know, show you how brilliant they are and almost gets that, like I said, masturbatory or patting yourself on the back of this is the movie that this is the image this is the vision. Right. Then there are people on the other side who like completely strip things away and act like you by default should understand what's happening in my movie. Right. And if you don't know it, well, it's just that you're bad at interpreting art. It's not my art is bad. Right. I feel like you got a really great sweet spot in this movie. Like you use some interesting terminology when it comes to parents, even or you know holders and uh, what's the language? And it's keepers. It's, uh, and, oh yeah, um, you don't have any owners, do you? Yeah, owners, right? That, like, that kind of comes I, I, from my past as well. That was um, my brother went into foster care when I was growing up, and that's how he referred to his his foster parents. He'd always call them his owners. And so I was like, hey, that's a part of me I want to throw in there, you know? And what's great, it was intriguing, it's interesting, and yet 
through the context and everything, I had a very vivid idea of what you meant, right? Right, right. Versus sometimes people use these obscure terminology or they create their own fictional language, like fucking J.K. Rowling with gillyweed. What the fuck is that? Just <laughs> use English, motherfucker. That's a platform. So it's great that you found that kind of sweet spot. Now, in terms of your brother, does that tie in at all to what the siblings of Boy Adam that I get all are mute throughout the film, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, uh, a little bit. I feel like essentially when it comes to Boy Adam, he's almost like the star pupil and the rest of them are still struggling to find their voice. And he's somebody who is trying. He's getting there. He's finding it. You know, he doesn't even know what a voice is necessarily yet. Right. But he's yeah. he's finding it. And and so it's almost like the other boys respect him, but they're just they don't realize that they're victims because Anytime something happens to you for a long period of time and that becomes day-to-day life, although you may understand you're on peril, when it's day-to-day life, you don't live your life like you're a victim. Uh, J.C. Lee Dugard talked about that with the in the Philip and Nancy Greedo case. She knew she was screwed, but by the same token, she also understood, well, this is day-to-day for me now. This is what I do. This is how I get water. This is how I get food, you know, so... And the kids are so young, it's almost like they don't realize anything should be a different way. And that's what's that's what I like about Gavin White as Boy Adam is that he's like figuring it out and we're getting to see him figure it out, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And he played, kind of tying into the tortured soul element, Burke, the little brother or the older brother, I think, of Jean Benet Ramsey. And I can only imagine like that kind of dark sibling relationship playing forth in here because he did a really great job of looking at these kids with sympathy and also a certain degree of disgust and you could tell that there was such you know a great backstory there like Mm -hmm. you could watch a sequel just about them like reintroducing into the world but that's obviously not what the story is so it's cool that you kind of you know have these things that clearly have depth beyond the narrative if that makes sense right yeah well, and we'll see, you know, maybe there'll be 6,000 sequels, you know, Arctic 27. It's coming. That's, that sounds <laughs> fucking legit. No. If it's as good as this one, I'll be fine. <laughs> now, in terms of familiarity and, you know, those kind of backstories, Chase Williamson, who played Holton, he had worked with Matt Mercer previously on Beyond the Gates. And what I love about that is, well, A, Barbara Crampton's in it and she's a total fucking babe. That's beside the point. <laughs> These guys... Like they clearly had a good camaraderie, at least the way that it is depicted on screen. And it made it so natural that you didn't have to tell me that Holton had been going to that meeting for weeks because they did such a good job. They were so magnetic off each other. That's like the purest relationship in the movie, which is weird. Like, I think that's so fascinating. Can you talk about writing for a character who simultaneously, I mean, Writing for a guidance counselor is hard, right? Because you have to be a certain degree of kumbaya, like the counselor from Beavis and Butthead. But at the same point, you don't want to make them seem like a contrived character who has no substance. So, you know, you can tell he's not an idiot. Like even he knows something's weird in this house. And then when he gets invited, he's like kind of begrudging because there's more than just a, oh, well, I'm an archetype. So I'm just going to be a doofus and walk in and, you know, leave my guard down. Right. Yeah. I mean, um, it was interesting because when I talked to Matt about the the character, it was something we both kind of like understood is that he's a straight edge guy that's grown up and has gotten into maybe 
therapy, energy work, crystals. <laughs> you know? yep. And it was yep. very, it was very interesting how you're like, you know, they're, they're not totally kumbaya, but that was exactly Matt's kind of interpretation of it. It's like, it's straight edge meets kumbaya. And, there you um, go. and so, yeah, when I was writing it, the idea was for Carr, the character that Matt Mercer plays to be more of like a, um, you know, he understands where Holton is, but he's also beyond it. And there's a certain degree of him because he's this leader of this Al-Anon group where he feels he's right. And he wants to tell people that. So it's always like, even though Holton's coming to him for, you know, what, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? Ask him for his advice. He's giving his advice freely as if to say, well, that clearly means this, you know, like I yeah. trust me, I know, but he's also not that pushy because he still has a little bit of that um, kind of rebellious in him, you know, the rebellious. Side. Oh, yeah. So, so yeah, that's kind of how I wrote it. But um, it was interesting because Matt played it essentially kind of exactly how you laid it out. So, you know, good job. You've won the movie. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. Well, he's he does a good job, like he's like you're talking about. He wants to be the smartest guy in the room, kind of. Right. And you can tell he's very self-involved with just a very basic line where he introduces himself to Holton, and Holton's like, "Yeah, dude, I've been coming here for a few weeks." It was very good because between them, you could tell Holton's very much the engaged listener. He's nodding, he's reacting. Right. And then the whole dynamic shifts and you can see that kind of sense of like, oh, I've just been called out on my shit. And then you break through that and then they have a much deeper relationship underneath it. Right. Super well done. Right. Well, thanks, man. Um, And yeah, and and that kind of ties into what you're saying too about like their on-screen chemistry. Like Matt and Chase are, uh, you know, they just have a very good, you know, they've known each other for a while. They've worked together before and they're both like incredibly funny in person. You know, they're just, they're just hilarious. And so they just play off each other really well. So, yeah, I mean, and they're both very natural. They're not the type of, I guess sometimes it's a director's choice, but sometimes I see people in films or actors who are kind of, it's not that they're not very giving. It's that they are acting the acting that's supposed to be acted <laughs> and i feel like okay. matt, matt and chase are more so no let me bring me to this and everything just feels a little more organic you know absolutely and it must have been cool i mean so matt has done tons of fucking horror stuff whether it's psychopaths or uh what was the heartless he did, uh, he contracted, did those... contracted two yeah phase two exactly so to have a guy who has done all these films be part of your film, your film, did he inform anything else besides his, you know, just his singular character or did his, did he influence you as a filmmaker beyond just, you know, his performance on screen? Yeah. I mean, one of the things he brought to the table that I didn't realize is he just loves horror films. Like That's I was awesome. like, Hey man, so what's your, uh, you know, not that we would get into big philosophical discussions or anything like that, but like one thing I would, you know, I asked him was like, "Hey man, what, what's kind of like, what's your end game?" And he's like, "Man, I just, I just want to keep being in horror films." You know, like he's just like if he could be in a horror film every weekend, there wouldn't be a happy, happier person on earth. Like he just, he's so fucking happy all the time. It's just amazing, and it just made me think of like, <laughs> just make sure next time you're casting, if you ever get to do this again. <laughs> you know, you're casting people who, I mean, they, they're loving what they're doing, you know, cause that, that just like shows and it brings a huge, it just brings a lot of like, I don't know, good energy and like good, I don't even know what you would call it. It's like, 
when they're there enjoying themselves, other people aren't going to be behind them, like moving lights begrudgingly, you know? It's generally when people are happy, it kind of reverberates, you know, and it spreads. Contagious, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's it's very contagious. And um, and so that's I feel like that's what he brought to the table. And he was just, you know, he was just a total pro. But yeah, man, it's just he's super fucking funny. He's super happy. I'm just like, you could literally be stabbing him in the eye. And he's like, this is so fucking cool. Is there a lot of blood? This is so awesome. <laughs> maybe not the eye, maybe through the chin and the cheek. Yeah, something stabbing like that. will be just fine. <laughs> One of the things, if I can, completely detracts from your work. Sorry about it. But when I was doing my research for our interview, so Matt and Lauren were both in a film called The Mind's Eye. Yes. Do Great Everybody movie. needs to do, exactly. You need to do a, yourself a favor. If you're not going to watch the full movie, at least check out the poster for it because I fucking love it. Uh, so we'll move on from there mind's eye has a great trailer too i really think joe has come up with films that are like you could say that they fit into this or fit into that but they're uniquely joe and uh that's really cool and uh one of those i remember the first time i saw the mind's eye trailer i just loved that it captured so much of like what is joe like what he likes it's there yeah you know Righteous. I yeah. think that that's, you know, and you were talking about your own style. So let's use that to pivot into our discussion about 11 minutes, because you were talking oh, sure. about when you when you sent me that film, or it's the short film, rather, that you were talking about, you know, the color, saturation, the filter. Uh, can you talk to me about you use some great terminology and I'm trying to spoon feed you so that you can be the one who said it so I don't sound like I'm self-indulgent and stealing your words. I need more spoons. Please make it more <laughs> obvious. No. Um, yeah. I mean. <laughs> The, the the kind of like tone, color, tone, and visual spectrum I've been looking for, I feel like I finally perfected with Arctic. And I started it with my first short film, which was called 11 Minutes. And it was this idea of stuff that looked very polished and extremely oversaturated, but like it's almost been ran over by a grindhouse movie, like adding lots of elements of film grain and breaking it down. This idea of taking something super pretty and just destroying it. So it's almost like, one of the prettiest movies I ever saw was Amelie. It's almost like if Amelie got ran over by every 70s grind exploitation film you've ever seen. You know, that's what I always wanted is bring me that color, the color of City of the, of the Lost Children. Bring me that oh. crispness, you know, a oversaturation and then destroy the shit out of it. And there we go, <laughs> you know, and that's kind of what I feel like Arctic is, is it's a combination of that type of lighting, that type of saturation. And also we still have the grain and uh, the film like kind of it retains that quality, the very film esque 70s, early 80s look. Yeah, it was somewhat reminiscent. There was a film I saw years ago called Bellflower. And aesthetically, it's similar, like with your work. Mm-hmm. But yours is like like that would be like the high school version and, and you're like the post baccalaureate version where you're like okay but this is how artists do it because like <laughs> that movie looks like it's just steeped in piss the entire time the filters are so strong it's like let's simmer it down but yeah i don't mean that to be con- you know it's not a slight on anybody's work but i had this very if when i got to your film and the aesthetic it was very much the goldilocks Ah, this is just right. This is just enough film grade. This is just like it, it. I could tell what you were going for without it being like, oh my God, will you please just desaturate a little bit or change the CMYK, if you will. Well, thanks, man. Yeah, I appreciate it. So 
in talking about 11 minutes, it's a short that, spoiler alert, is only six minutes and 22 seconds long. Oh, gosh. Yeah. I'm just kidding. I'm not actually upset with you. I think that's fun. Leave them guessing. Because when it ended, I looked down at the YouTube and I was like, the YouTube, Jesus Christ, am I 70 years old? I looked at the YouTube. (laughs) I looked down. I was like, oh, it's only six minutes. Even better. Less is always more for me. But in writing that and writing, you know, a film like Arctic, let me ask you a question. Has anybody ever reached out to you and be like, you okay, bud? Like, are things good? Oh, man. Like every (laughs) ex-girlfriend. Like so many, so many, um, you know, bosses and ex-bosses, you know, know. so, so, you know, but that's how it goes. Yeah. I mean, I just think that when it comes to maybe a little of that, the, the darker twinge of things or the darker, like the darker edge of certain stories, I think I just really like exploring that whole aspect because I mean, for me, especially like growing up straight edge, I'm, you know, I'm also Polish, so I'm an immigrant and it was weird being in America and all this stuff. I just didn't have the same vision. I wasn't afforded that growing up. So yeah. I had to look at everything else from a different perspective. And so naturally it kind of curved me into this weird analytical mindset. And so I started analytically uh, analyzing all different types of mindsets and one of the things that just would always draw me in was like that darker element you know like that listening to the cure you know <laughs> like oh like, no yeah. I, i'd be like hey but what's that actually about and that was just one of those ideas where i always thought there was a lot of interesting stuff going on in that part of my brain while the other parts seemed interesting but maybe they weren't as i didn't feel like there was that much to explore in there and so yeah i mean you know, uh, 11 minutes for those that don't know, is kind of short about a workplace shooting, but the idea is the shooter never has a gun and you're not really sure what's happening. And I kind of wanted to create this mind fuck of things that really was an excuse to have a good editing reel. And I was like, oh, well, I'd oh, love beautiful. to get a shot of this. I'd love to get a shot of that. I'd love to get a shot of this. And I just wanted to combine things. And then it just turned out that it kind of all gelled together perfectly, you know? And yeah, I mean, it definitely feels very dark and um, I feel like uh, it's just more inherently interesting to me than a story about maybe like a a love triangle or a story about, you know, whatever else it is. Zombies. I don't know. You know? Yeah. I think I could speak for 80% of the horror population is where I'm like, God, enough zombies, enough cosplay where you're Captain America, but a zombie or where you're, you know, you're, you're B. Arthur, but a zombie. Like we we've seen it done. And this is huge. You and I were talking before we went on the air as far as you do. We live in a world where horror has classically been a very good way for people to express horror and sci-fi. I have to give it that. a way to express a a critical mindset by making something very alien right you can go back to star trek and you got the guy who's half white and half black and the black half black half white you know you can go back to dawn of the dead and you can talk about socioeconomics Um, and so in those very broad strokes and with this dude you did something that it is very confrontational to like sense and sensibility. You made it five years ago and it's still as topical now, if not more so now than it was then. Uh, so can you talk about just your perception of how it's aged over time? Oh uh, yeah. The short 11 minutes. Um, well, I guess it's, it's not necessarily that I did something that was ahead of its time. It's more so a testament to how shitty and afraid people are uh, in our current society to, 
to really do to to really affect change when it comes to like school shootings, mass shootings, and just how much kind of like PCness has taken over and how like I feel like if people weren't just so afraid and just let go of whatever it is they're holding on to when it came to policies and politicians, you know, you would probably have a return on the assault ban for certain weapons and things like that. But, uh, you know, will it ever happen? I don't know. I mean, if you go to first grade, you're at risk of death now. If you go to the Gilroy, the, you know, the Gilroy Fest, yep. the Garlic Fest, you're at risk. It's like there's so many times when you're at risk now. You go to Walmart, you're at risk of dying now. So, you know, I, it's more so America just has gotten inherently shittier. And so, therefore, when you come to a topic like a workplace shooting or a mass shooting, it's just, I mean, that's like every day now, you know? Yeah. So There have literally been more shootings in the United States this year than there have been days in the year. There have been more shootings than times I have been to Krispy Kreme. Oh my God. And that's crazy because, <laughs> yeah. you know, I mean, I'm not that big on donuts, but I'm just saying, I feel like it should be a, a once in a lifetime. Like, do, do you guys remember that shooting in 1987? Oh, I oh, heard yeah. stories about that shit. And, and exactly. Just, yeah. So I remember Columbine, like changed the climate of the world. And now it's like, oh, well, thoughts and prayers. And dude, we were at Midsummer Scream all weekend. And it, the Long Beach Convention Center, I don't know if you've been there, but the, like the floor of everything, you go downstairs or an escalator into this lowered area. And let me tell you, if some motherfucker pops off with a saw and is just mowing people down, like that was on my mind the first day we were there, right. much less the second day after we hear even worse news. And so let me ask you a question pretty directly about this film, uh, the short rather, without, you know, Spoilers, I mean, you should all go see it, but the way that it ends is on the shooter. It is on him on his knees, and he is clearly in pain. And I, I took that to be talking about, you know, mental health and the state of mental health in the United States as far as, or I guess rather the world. People are so ashamed and embarrassed to talk about issues and what's, you know, keeping them up at night and what's frustrating to them and these things that I thought that it was a very bold move to finish on him, not only because it's visually dynamic. But also the, the statement that it makes is you know, he is in pain having done this. He's not sitting in a corner and jacking off. You know, was that supposed to be the statement that I took it as? Or am I just, you know, politicizing it even more so because of recent events? Yeah, I mean, when I was growing up, when I saw Columbine, part of the thing that I thought is like, you know, at first was, wow, they stood up to the bullies. Like, you can do that? Yeah. You know, I didn't think like, holy shit, what is going on? This is horrific. It was almost like wow, someone did something about the bullies. And so when I came up with, uh, when we were doing 11 Minutes, the idea was, you know, this person inherently is not happy with what he's doing. He feels like there's no other choice. And I also like the idea of sometimes switching, you know, the sympathetic character instead of it having to be you following a formula where it's always, you know, good guys have emotion, bad guys don't. Like, I think that's horseshit. I think more interesting to me is, well, yeah, this person's doing horrible things, but what if you felt something for them, you know? And I just thought, you know, it's not always the case. Not, not every case is the same. There are a lot of similar cases when it comes to like 
shooters and things like that. And again, by, by all means, I just made one feature film. I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. <laughs> so I hope no one's listening like, uh, oh, he's bringing up some good points. No, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not bringing up anything. I literally bring up perspectives, not points. I get I'm it. literally talking because I'm trying to keep my mind off of Krispy Kreme. That's the only reason this is happening right now. <laughs> I'm just trying not comfort to, food. Just trying not to droll. <laughs> so, awesome. Yeah. So no, I mean, uh, the idea there was just sometimes people do bad things, and it's not because they are inherently bad people. It's because they don't understand a certain aspect of themselves, or maybe they don't have another choice. And I just really like exploring that aspect of how the brain works instead of the aspect of. I'm a badass. I smoke a cigarette under, you know, one lamp that's dimly lit and I have a huge shotgun. I'm going to kill everyone. I'm a badass. Right? You know, it's just like, come on. We've already seen that. <laughs> and his moment of sensitivity is directed to this girl. And the, the sensation I got out of your actor, Raphael, he's looking at her with this kind of imploring look of like almost like begging her with his eyes. Right. Yeah. And I was like, the way I interpreted that was, he's looking at her and like, like, couldn't you have helped me? Like, couldn't we have talked before this? And I thought that was wonderful. And going to another point you were making, like fucking John Wick is the worst person in the world. You know, uh, John Rambo, these are fucking deplorable, awful people, but we idolize them because it's fucking fun. But I think that, you know, having a short film like yours is very important. Talk about like, you could easily have re-edited this to where he's the fucking badass. He's the G who sticks it to the man, you right. know, his boss who 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 you know wrote him up for coming into work with a shirt untucked, you know, right. for the person who didn't tip him enough. That's one of the things I like about what's what's uh that Michael Douglas movie uh, like falling, falling down. Falling down. Where it's like it starts off and people are like, "Yeah, that cheeseburger doesn't look like that cheeseburger." Yeah. And then by the end of it you're like, "Oh, wait, he's the worst person ever. I need to check myself." And that's something I think you did very effectively. Yeah. Well, thanks, man. Yeah. I mean, I was just trying to create an editing reel. So <laughs> But uh but no, yeah, I uh yeah, I appreciate that. It's um you know, it's just the other thing I've I've heard when it comes to that specific project is a lot of people have told me, I like how you did a setup where we're realizing the human is the agent of destruction. It's not about a gun. It's not about even gun violence necessarily. A hundred percent. Yeah. And I, I thought that was really interesting because I never really looked at it like that, but it makes sense. Yeah. I mean, I've been, I'm a self-proclaimed libtard. I mean, I, I counted as a point of pride the first time during the 2016 election that somebody called me one. You know, I'm a very liberal guy. I'm very into human rights. I mean, as a vegan, I'm very into animal rights, but I'm also a firearm owner. Like, I think that just like you're saying, these are things that these are human conditions. These are human errors. I mean, you've seen the destructive capabilities of even a pickup truck. Right. So I think that, you know, it's, it's what's great about a film like yours is even your intent was is very simple and effective. Right. But it gives us a talking point, a launching off point where you could have a very deep discussion about this. You, you logistically could even show this in an elementary school because, you know, in terms of censorship, when it comes to what's happening, there's nothing, you know, gory or profane or anything out of what you've done and that you've created this thought provoking piece, which unfortunately is more topical today than then, but that's neither here nor there. Yeah. Well, that's just timing, unfortunately, but yeah. So to pop us out of the kind of dark subject matter in terms of looking ahead, the release of Arctic, 
what are you, what excites you about your career moving forward? Because what's fun is, you know, like at, we were talking about at the start, my wife, had, uh, you have been friends for years and we, I've never met you in person and I look forward to potentially meeting you in the future. Uh, It'll but never she, happen. Never. No. You hear me? Never. I'm going to Krispy Kreme and I'm just going to wait and I'll find you, motherfucker. Yeah. But she was talking about how how absolutely thrilled and excited she was about your career, having seen this very you know great upward trajectory. So what excites you about what's next? Oh, man, I don't know everything. Like, uh, honestly, for me, one of my big bucket list goals was just like, oh, I hope I can move to L.A. for a year. That's all I want to do in my life. And then like yep. the other big bucket list goal that was like, maybe this would happen at some point in my life, you know, dating back to when I was a kid was just like, oh, if I could ever do one feature, just one feature film. Oh my God. And so now it's like, I, I, I don't even know what to expect, you know? And I'm just, um, I'm not really concerned about what's coming. I'm just like, have, you know. <laughs> I just totally felt like quoting a Creed song with arms wide open. You know? Yes, dude. Um, but, uh, you know, just um, hopefully this podcast never gets released. No one hears that shit. Um, but no, no, it's definitely <laughs> the only thing that's going to change is I might overdub it where I do a backing vocal with you because I love what's that i love i've mentioned it on the show like three or four times just to piss brian off we'll be like i'm six feet from the edge and i'm thinking right um yeah no so for me it's just kind of um you know i'm still going after certain things there's still things creatively i'm looking to do but you know honestly the bucket list goals have kind of been achieved so everything from here on out's a bonus so you know, I'm just like really excited that these things happen because honestly, I can't tell you how it felt after moving to LA. And then after we wrapped shooting on the last day, just driving back home, we shot in Ab Albuquerque in New Mexico and just driving back home from Albuquerque was this weird, you know, I hadn't lost any weight, but I felt 20 pounds lighter. It was just weird. I was just, I remember I started screaming in the car, like you did that shit what the fuck yeah, <laughs> that's awesome like i just didn't think um i just didn't think stuff like that would ever ever happen so you know i mean that story is wonderful because honestly i've been on a weird owl kick for the last month and if it wasn't for the sentiment in your story i would have interrupted you just to sing albuquerque so you're welcome <laughs> does he have a song called albuquerque i didn't know that it's his best song it's an original and i think it's 11 minutes long wow and funny enough going back to autobiographical bullshit when sierra and i were first dating i played that song for her as like a test to see if she would stick through the whole thing and she did she didn't change it she didn't even turn the volume when we were in like a road trip and i was like this is the one so you can use the same <laughs> thing <laughs> yeah oh that's awesome well, it sounds like you have a very great mentality, if I may, in terms of like you kind of said everything else kind of seems like the, the icing on the cake. Like you you seem to have a very grateful nature about yourself. And I've seen your posts on Facebook and everything. And I'm very happy to you know share well, the hey, mutant never, from never beyond. trust Facebook. That could be the Russians. We don't know. Yeah, we for don't sure. Know. <laughs> but so I guess my kind of ad or question is, do you have this kind of double or nothing attitude towards the future? Like not only just is it a gift, but do you kind of feel like because you've accomplished this great risk that you could do the risk again? I feel like now I could be more calculated and okay. I can take a risk, but it's more like a calculated risk. Well, 
you know, Arctic was about me just saying, fuck it. I'm spending every dollar I have. And everyone, and you know, I heard no, I mean, I heard, I, I like, I was actually counting at a certain point about like getting funding and this and that getting certain, uh, an actor or something like that. And I remember I was up to like 47 notes and I was like, oh, why, wow. am I, why am I counting the nose? And then they just kept coming until the one yes came in. And that's all that matters is you only need one yes. So, yeah, I mean, I, it's not necessarily double or nothing. It's more like now I'm not afraid of no. I'm not a, I'm just, I'm just like not afraid of being afraid. You know, it's just like, fuck it. Let's go. I hope I shit myself. Come on. You know, so, you know, so like when it comes to certain writing, maybe writing on a scene or something along those lines, there's less of a fear of, well, will I have the budget to pull this off? Or do I need to think like a producer and cut back this and this and this? Now there's certain things where, I, although I can do that um, as one option, there's also the option of, no, I can just do things and understand how to, you know, move the budget around or do this, or maybe I could, I learned this trick. So now I can, I can do this and I don't need to be so worried as much like when it comes to scheduling, you know, things like that. So yeah, I mean, that's, that's the main thing is just understanding that even when I'm limited to is not the end, but you know, also, Hey man, who knows if, I'll, if, if any of us will ever get another chance to feel get another chance to do a podcast or I'll get another chance to do a movie. So I'm just like, uh, holy shit, uh, this thing's happening right. now. So I'm just going to enjoy it. We'll see what happens. Well, imagine trying to tell a caveman about the exciting things that we get to do. So like, while the world is a bucket of shit, like there's sometimes sprinkles on top. And I feel like I'm very happy to have witnessed, you know, your sprinkles uh, without being overly uh, silly about it. So the film comes out September 10th on Blu-ray and video on demand. Is there anything that you would like to say in closing remarks to the mutant goons from beyond before we wrap up today? Oh, man. Well, yeah, I have an entire dissertation I would like to present. No, Four no. score <laughs> and seven years ago. No, um, no man, just uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for having me on. And, uh, you know, let me know what you think of the movie. And uh, Oh, I'll tell you plainly what I think of your movie. I think it's absolutely worth seeing. And <laughs> nice. I'm so grateful that I had the opportunity to talk to you. Because just like with our good friend Clayton Cogswell, who we had previously done a director spotlight on, it's it's so frustrating to me that there's something I can watch like this that I enjoy, that is thought-provoking, that is interesting, it's entertaining on multiple levels, could have completely slipped by me, you know, in the, you know, the, I guess, garbage shoot that is media today where you have so much just pummeling you every day. Uh, I'm very grateful, and if I can influence even one of our listeners to take a chance on it, I'd be very happy to do so. Well, that's awesome, man. Thank you very much. And uh, yeah, thanks for having me on. And yeah, maybe we'll get that one listener. There we go. That's what it counts. So for my good friend, Tom Bocci, for myself, for Brian, Chad, Jim, who are off doing other things in much cooler temperatures, I am Jake, reminding you to go out there and do something you love. And remember that all work and no power play makes Jack a dull boy. <laughs> <laughs>